Well, it's no secret our pastors are out tonight. <clears throat> it's no secret anymore. Uh, you know, I've been to a lot of churches. Uh, in the past, I've, I've been to many, many churches. I interned at churches. I was a member at some other churches. I visited a whole slew of others. And you know what most pastors do during the summer? Movies, golf. Those are all good responses. Well, they're not good, but they're good responses. What, anybody have an idea? Look, most pastors will take a summer vacation. Okay, They'll take their family, they'll pick them up, They'll throw them into the car or into the airplane and they'll go to some place like Cancun or something. Say, peace out to the congregation. We're having a a four-week sermon series of guest preachers. Have fun. I'll see you when I get back. And they'll go and a lot of times you don't even know where where they go. I was interning at a church and the pastor was gone for two to three months of the entire summer with his family. Because it was his vacation time, and it was, it was rightly due him, because he needed a vacation. You know, our pastors, first of all, they're not alone. All three of our pastors and the entirety of their families are together. And guess what? They didn't get on a plane and go to Cancun. They got in their Suburbans and Tahoes, in their big vehicles, they packed their families up, and they went just a couple hours away. Why? prayer to get godly direction for this church they went away not because they thought that they needed a vacation they went away to press in and see what the lord might have for a direction for this congregation in the coming days weeks months and years to refocus themselves and to really put what a real sabbath is supposed to be into practice that is a godly way to spend a little bit of time away from a congregation. It's a godly thing to do. You know, one of the reasons why they're doing this and they're taking it so seriously is because this congregation, this church, it really is their family. When when we look and in the Word we see the church is, is supposed to act as a familial unit, these pastors are taking that seriously. Let's go to uh, Matthew 12, verse 46. It says, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You know, when I first read this verse, it was like a whole paradigm shift happened in my life. It was the craziest thing. The Holy Spirit, I mean, it's even in the, even in the very uh, beginning of my Bible. I have the Luke scripture written out from Luke chapter 8. My mother and my brothers are those who do the will of the Father. It seems kind of insensitive to Jesus, right? Hey, Jesus, blessed is the mother who gave you birth. Blessed, rather, are the ones who hear 
the word of God and put it into practice was Jesus' reply. It, it seems a little insensitive. Man, that's your mom. My mom, praise the Lord, is here tonight. She fears the Lord. She's a God-fearing woman. And I thank the Lord all the time for that. But this congregation, these people to your left, these people to your right, take a really, really good look at who's sitting with you. Because Jesus, he, he walked the earth and He said, Look, those are my family who hear the voice of my Father and they do what the Father says. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is so cool. I love the relationship between Paul and Timothy. I love it because we see so many things about discipleship, so many things about the pains of growth and what a discipler and a disciplee is supposed to look like, what that relationship is like. In chapter 3, starting in verse 14, it says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how my people ought to conduct themselves, check it, in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. How many in here, by a show of hands, have their life been bought with the blood of Christ? That is a good amount of people. I would say I didn't see one hand not shoot up. Well, if you're bought with His blood and you belong to Him, then this is His household. This is the place where His Spirit dwells. This is the place where He does work. This is the place where those who have been bought with Him and who know it and who live like it gather together and they have everything in common like Acts chapter 2 talks about. If you're sitting in this body and you're having a really, really hard time connecting with some of the people here, you feel like no matter what you do, you just can't connect, you can't find common ground, you can't seem to mesh. There's a barrier there. Then the Bible commands us to search our own heart first. If we can't find the commonality that we desire from this congregation, it might be because we have not truly put the kingdom first in our life yet. We, the more that we put the kingdom first, the more that we see the kingdom breaking out and we focus our heart, our mind, our soul, all of our energy on the kingdom and we make it our primary goal, then when we start looking around and seeing other people who are doing the same, we are like magnets to one another. We're so attracted. We want to spend all of our time with each other because we see another guy or another girl pouring out their life and all their energy for the gospel just like we are. And it makes everything in common. Acts chapter 2 says they had everything in common and they met together every single day. This should be a heart check for some of us in here. It should be a real gut check if we're looking around and we're having trouble finding some commonality uh, as we look at look at this and bo- at this body, and we try to uh, connect ourselves to it. Look down at chapter five in the same book, verses one and two. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, 
older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Paul's saying, Timothy, you're younger than I am. You're, you're a young man in the church, but you have authority as given by the Holy Spirit by the laying on of my hands. And you're going about and you're doing the work, but when you look at the people inside of these churches, regard the older people as like your dad's. Regard the older women as like your moms. Look around and regard the ones who are like you as your brothers and sisters and make sure to keep it pure. This is a completely familiar relationship. As I look, I see, I see mothers and fathers. I see brothers. I see sisters. I see little brothers. I see little sisters. You guys are my family. And it's seen by the way that I live. I love spending time with you. I love doing ministry with you. I love worshiping with you. I love getting into the presence of God with you because we have commonality with us. We've given up our lives for the gospel. We'll do anything for one another. And there's no blood family in the world like the family of Jesus Christ. There's just not. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Man, we can't take this for granted, guys. The time truly is short. It is so short. We can't take this for granted. Something that the Lord has literally plopped in your lap. Somebody came and, and either prayed with you or talked to you, and they testified about what was going on in their life, and they said, you've got to come visit my family. And we come. And even if we've been coming, it's so easy to take this for granted. And I just don't want to do that tonight. 2 verse 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. I want to remind you guys about a prophecy that our pastors received just a few weeks ago. And once I start to say it, it might spark some remembrance in some of us. But basically, the prophecy went something like this. There are um, fig trees in this body, right here, and they're not producing fruit. And there's a question of, should we chop the fig tree, or should we stand back and wait and see if the fig tree is going to bear fruit? And the prophecy went went like this. There's fig trees out there, but do not chop them down yet. Dig around the fig tree, fertilize the fig tree, and stand back and wait for another period of time. Give the fig tree another chance to see if it's going to bear more fruit before you just go to chop it down. For some of us in here, we've really, really got to meditate on that word. Is there good, tangible fruit being birthed in your life because of what the Lord's doing in you right now? Are you taking this familial relationship for granted and going about your life and showing up when you want to? Or are you taking full grasp of the advantage of what the Lord's put in your lap? And because you're doing it, because you're involved, because you're seeking fellowship, because you're doing these things and you're getting plugged in in this place and you're finding commonality with the brothers and the sisters, it's bearing fruit in your life. It's got to. Look, our time is short here, but... The Lord's time for some of us is even shorter than we think that it is. There's no time to waste. 
We've got to start plugging ourselves in and taking this seriously and bearing fruit from what is going on in this place. The Lord is gracious and He's merciful and He's giving some of us more time to start bearing godly fruit. But this is the opportunity literally of a lifetime that you've got placed before you. Do not squander it. Look, our pastors are here to prepare God's people for works of service. That is what fivefold ministry is all about. But we, you, start bearing good fruit when you take hold of the opportunities that are put in your lap. Good fruit starts being born in your life. Let's flip over to 1 Corinthians 14. <laughs> this is such a common verse, but such a fantastic verse. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. So, the question is, when you walk through those doors tonight, who of you in here came with something? Before you walk through the door, who came with something to share? One of these things. One of these things that it says. Uh, a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Who came ready when you walk? When you walk through the door, you're like, man, I cannot wait. I'm praying for the Lord for an opportunity to share this revelation that I got. Okay. Praise God. Well, then I'm not preaching to the choir tonight, okay? This is a good thing. It's time for growth. It's time to stretch ourselves out. Did you hear some of those prophecies coming forth today? Yes. Man, the ground in front of us is looking more and more rocky. When that happens, we press into Him and we press into each other. That's, it's a good thing. The rocky, the rocky ground in front of us is a blessing from God. He's saying, man, I'm trying to make you into what you're supposed to be. This is good. So, I guess the question is, do we have the right to modify the Word of God and do something different than what it says? No. Treester, do we have that right? No. Alex, do we have the right to, to read a verse that we're so familiar with and to do something different than what it says? See, I don't think that we do. This is such a clear verse. It's such a pivotal verse in this chapter Let's turn to Deuteronomy 16 and see what else the Word might have, to, might have to tell us about this. Look, this is the way that the first century church operated. Deuteronomy 16, we're going to start in verse 16. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord, your God, at the place He will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. No man should appear before the Lord, what does it say? Empty-handed. Empty Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Now, who feels blessed in here? Raise your hand if you feel truly blessed by God. So, 
Our responsibility is to walk through those doors and in proportion with our blessings, bring something to the house of God. This is God's household. Man, I feel so blessed. But when I walk through those doors and I bring nothing to the table, I bring nothing into the house. Man, how many of you grew up in a household where your parents taught you that it was impolite to be invited somewhere else and to not show up with some food or something? I mean, you got to show up to somebody else's house and you have to bring something there in proportion to your blessings, right? This is the concept that we see in Deuteronomy 16. When we come through God's household, how much more? How much more? You know what? I feel blessed. But sometimes I wonder if the things that I feel blessed by are really blessings in God's eyes. Or if I'm truly poor... And God sees me as poor, and yet I feel blessed because I'm looking at my life in a way that is not godly. You see, when we walk through those doors with nothing, we're poor. We're in poverty. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Man, I was reading Galatians chapter 2, and I encountered some very curious verses here. We got four there. Hallelujah. We're going to start in six. As for those who seemed to be important, remember that. People who seem to be important. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. Pay attention to verse 10 here. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, growing up in the culture that I've grown up in, I immediately disagreed with this statement. Paul was asked to continually remember the poor, and the first thing that comes to mind is a story something that I witnessed myself. In this city, there was a man in a wheelchair, and he was on the side of the road, and he was asking for money. And it was later on in the day, and I was just looking at him, and what I like to do is pray and see if the Holy Spirit pierces my heart or gives me some sort of, give me something, you know? And so I'm looking at the guy, and I'm praying for him, and I'm feeling absolutely nothing. It's getting late. I'm at the light, and he rolls over, and I watch him, and he starts, he starts rolling across the street. There's really no one around. Rolling, 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 rolling. And so I get this weird little notion that I'm going to follow this guy. And so I, I follow him, kind of sly-like. And I follow him. I'm following him. He's rolling, he's rolling. He rolls into a parking lot. He gets to a car. 
He gets out of his wheelchair, pops that wheelchair up, puts it in his trunk, closes the lid, walks to his seat, and drives off. And I'm like, Lord, what am I going to do with that? What, I mean, are you just trying to show me that, that people are just inherently wicked? or what, what is this? I mean, this dude literally is standing out here in a wheelchair and he has perfect use of his legs. So, needless to say, I disagreed with verse 10. I'm like, Lord, what are you talking about here? What, what, there's got to be more to this than what I'm, what I'm uh, getting just from the plain use of the text here. So, let's turn to Luke chapter 4. Try to get some more insight on this. Verse 16 says, He, meaning Jesus, went to Nazareth where He had had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, He went into the synagogue as was His custom. And He stood up to read. The scroll in the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is when Jesus stood up, he opened to Isaiah chapter 61, and he began to read. Well, what do you know? That poor back in Galatians 2 and poor in Luke chapter 4 are the exact same word in the Greek. What is that word? It's Greek 4434 and it's ptokos. P-T-O-C-H-O-S. What does it mean? Well, the first obvious meaning is destitute of wealth. What else does it mean? Influence. Destitute of influence. Destitute of position or honor. Lowly, afflicted, destitute just in general, helpless or powerless to accomplish an end. Hear this last. Lowly in spirit. Look, in that moment I realized that Jesus is is not talking about He's going to preach to those who are poor financially. They might be in that category, but He's looking for the ones who know that they're missing something in their life. So you see, the prophecy back in Isaiah 61 that Jesus is quoting hundreds of years before said that this Messiah is going to come and He's going to look for the lowly. He's going to look for the destitute. He's going to look for the ones who have a void inside of them. And they know they've got a void and they're trying to do something about it, but they just don't have hope. They just don't know what to do. And they're willing to do something different. And that's where we come in. Turn over to Matthew chapter 9. Verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And when I read this passage, I started thinking about tax collectors. These dudes are some of the wealthiest Jews there are. They are so wealthy because what they do is they go to the Roman government and they say, hey, I'm a Jew. I know all about Jews. I live in the Jewish land, but I want to work for you. And the Roman government says, hey, that sounds great. We're going to employ you to get taxes for us from your people. And they get employed and they walk around and they knock on doors and they find families and they get money from them. And whatever overages they obtain from these families, they get to keep themselves. These are some of the greediest guys that you will ever meet. But they were also some of the richest, wealthiest, most well-off. But guess what? They knew that what they were doing was messed up. I mean, you're a Jew and you're against your own people. You are putting in hardship your own people. And you're looking at families who cannot pay the bill and you're saying, I'm sorry, this is what's due and this is my cut and I need it now. It's a terrible existence. But these are the guys that Jesus was hanging out with. So it, we're not talking about financial here. We're talking about people who know their state. Sinners is in quotations because they knew who they were. They didn't just know, but everyone around them knew how bad they were. They knew that they needed something. Sinners, look at all those sinners. Everybody knew who they were, including themselves. And these were the guys that Jesus sought out and spent most of his time with. Are we getting the picture so far? Yes. Amen. So let's talk about this. What does the Bible say about this new concept of poor? You ready? We're going to go Old Testament, Law, Prophets, Writings. You ready for it? Yes. Let's start in Deuteronomy 24. We're going to start in 14. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset, because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. So put yourself in this guy's position. And there are poor people around you. And what's the command? Hey, whether he's of your same people, whether he's not of your people, it doesn't matter. We need to be like Jesus. We need to search after the ones who know that they're desperate for something, who know that they need something. And what does it say? Don't take advantage of them, but pay them their due every single day. The Lord's going to put somebody, at least one in your life, every day who knows where they are. And He's going to look to you and He's going to say, I put this poor person in your life. Look, they might not look anything like what you'd expect, but they're going to know that they're desperate. And He says, look, pay him his wages each day. Seek the Lord and get something for this person every single day of the week. Otherwise, the poor person that you neglected, he might cry out to the Lord. And guess what? The guilt falls on us. 
You see, when, when Jesus puts somebody in our life, and He's somebody who is searching for something, and we miss the opportunity because we were not ready for it, Jesus says, when they cry out later, man, that, that's guilt on us. That's shame on us. And it should not be that way. Let's go to the... Let's go to Job. Job chapter 5. Starting in verse 8. But if it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before Him. We start here. We appeal to God, and we lay, it says, I will lay my cause before Him. But if our cause isn't God's cause, then we've got a lot more work to do, right? So we appeal to God, we lay His cause back before Him, and we get His heart. Keep reading. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water upon the countryside. The lowly He sets on high. And those who mourn are lifted to safety. How in the world are these lowly mourners going to be lifted up? How is God going to do it? Well, of course, the the correct answer is He's going to use us to do it. He's going to look at you and He's going to say, there's a lowly mourner. There's somebody who is mourning in their soul over where they are. And I'm calling you because you've appealed to me and you have lined yourself up with me. I'm calling you to speak into their life. He thwarts thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon they grope as in the light. You say, but how in the world am I supposed to know who these poor people are? How am I supposed to know? Because there's so many crafty people in this world. Look, the Lord's promised to the crafty already what they're going to get. He's promised to the sly ones already in these verses what they're going to receive. But it's important to seek the Lord so that we can get His perspective in the matter. So that just the outward appearance of a man or a woman doesn't immediately turn us off or turn us on to what the Lord's trying to do. The Lord has never looked at the outward appearance of somebody. That's why you can drive around and you can see poor people all over the streets of Houston and know as you pray that those are not the poor that you've been looking for, right? That's how you can know that. Because the Lord's not looking at what they look like, what they're doing, what their occupation is. He's looking and He's trying to tell you, hey, this guy that looks super put together right now, he's the one. He's the one you're supposed to be going to. Verse 15, He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts its mouth. Look, this is so powerful here, if you can hear it. Look at verse 15. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. Look, I've heard from the mouths of people in this congregation how close they were to ending it all before they found Him. There are people sitting in these seats right now who almost ended their life 
out of desperation. Because they were so poor, they did not think that there was a way out. He's going to save the needy from the sword in their mouth. He's going to save the ones who are so desperate that they want to end it. These are the ones that we are looking for. These are the ones that we are seeking out. Isn't it so interesting that when Jesus is talking to the disciples, they come to Him and He's he's telling them, hey, don't pray for the harvest. It's so big already. There are so many people out there who are needy and poor already. Pray for more workers. We know why He said that now. Because there are so many poor, desperate people out there who are just waiting to receive the word of hope from your mouth. So many. We need to pray for more people to get shoulder to shoulder with us. Go to Isaiah 41. Amen. Guys, this is so awesome here in verse 17. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. How's he not going to forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set pines in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. So there is going to be desert. And the Lord says, I'm going to put trees right in the middle of the desert. Maybe we've been looking at our workplace in a way that is not godly. Maybe we, we've been saying about our workplace, man, this place is just a dried up desert. It feels desolate here. It feels like I'm all alone. It feels oppressive. It feels dry. And the Lord says, you are the tree in the desert. You are the, the tree that I planted right in the middle of nowhere. And water is flowing to you but it's your job to provide for the rest of the desert. I've put you there for a purpose. And it's desolate for a reason. Because I have looked and I have seen that you are competent. You are worthy for the task. This is for you. You're worthy to be planted in a desolate place. To be fed from on high by the rains of the heavens and to feed the people around you. So do not be discouraged about where you work anymore. Do not be discouraged about the places that the Lord's planting you any longer. That that should be long gone from your thought process. Because the Lord has put you there for His purposes. Turn to Jeremiah 22.
Verse 15. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. The Lord's talking. He says, look, it doesn't make you a king if you have so much revelation. It doesn't make you a king if you have so much downloaded into your head from on high. If you have so much knowledge, so much wisdom, you know the scriptures by heart, that's not what makes you a king. What makes you a king is that you do what is right and just. What makes you a king is that when you do, everything starts to go well with you. That is what a king looks like. Read on to the next verse. This is so good. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. You know God when you start defending the cause of the poor and needy. You know God's character when you cannot help but to seek out the poor and the needy in your midst. When you know what you've been created for because you know what Jesus came for. That's how you know that you know Him. When this becomes your life. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. Very, very common rebuke to Laodicea. We've heard it before, but it, it kind of goes right along with Jeremiah 22. 17 says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear, that means the righteous acts of the saints, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Look, he's saying you've been given much. You're in a, you're in a place where there is rich revelation. There is rich teaching coming forth. There is so much that this place has to give. And you've been given so much into your brain, into your life, into your family. There's so many deposits there. But are you using it to go after those righteous acts? Are you using it to go after the poor? Are you using it to seek and save what is lost? You see, when we read these passages from Revelation chapter 3, it's like the church in Laodicea was... Laodicea was saying, I'm blessed, but they had little to give. Right? It's just like what we were talking about at the very beginning of the sermon. I'm blessed, but I have very little to give. So I have a picture. This is going to seem like it's right out of left field. But Susan, man, I know we've got some, some calculus people in here. I am not one of you. 
I do like math, but I never really got super far into this stuff. But, man, I'll tell you what. The Lord is so good. I'm sitting on my couch last night, and I'm praying, and He just drops this integral function. I'm like, whoa! Where in the world did that come from, Lord? Like, that was weird. That's the title of the sermon, by the way. Integral function. And so, I'm like, where in the world did this even come from? And so I start doing a little bit of research, and some of those old uh, thoughts, teachings, start coming back to my mind. So, what you see on the left, as you see at the top, is a derivative. Now, what a derivative uh, or a derivative function is, is in calculus, it's a method to find the level of variance. So you don't have to understand what's in this picture here. But what you do have to understand is that when you're finding a derivative, it's all about finding the level of variance first. You have to find the derivative so that you can find the integral or integral function. So the integral function, also in calculus, is a method to find the area under a slope. So you have level of variance that you find first, and then you have area under a slope that you find second with that level of variance. I know it's confusing, but we're about to explain it. Turn to First Chronicles 29, 17. Look, if your level of variance is inaccurate, then what you do with what you found at first is going to just totally mess up the integral. The integral function is totally going to throw it for a loop. And it will be inaccurate. You will not be able to see rightly what is underneath that slope. Verse 17 says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now, look at this, I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. So there's, there's two steps here. David looked at his own heart. He found in his own heart the level of variance. How his heart, in its present condition, varied from the heart of God. And he corrected it. He found it rightly. And what did that enable him to do? In the second part of the verse, it says, And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. When he found the correct level of variance, corrected it, and looked at other people, he was able to see them rightly. Okay? So, level of variance is like integrity. Okay? If you don't have it right with God's standard, then you won't be able to see in others what they actually need. You won't be able to see underneath the slope rightly. You'll get it wrong. So, if you have a heart that is compromised in integrity then when you go to the integral function and you try to look inside of somebody and see what they really need, you're going to get it wrong every time. 
Now, you might, you might stumble on something good once in a while, but let me tell you, it's not going to be how the Lord ordained for it for you. Look, the first step is always in introversion, looking deep inside of your heart first. It always starts here. Let's turn to Psalm 78. Starting in verse 70. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. And that's the end of the psalm. So David had integrity in his heart and it enabled him to discipline, to lead, to speak into other people's lives because his heart was full of integrity, just like God. David was said to have a heart after God. And guess what? It showed up all in his life. He was a master at giving people what they need. He was a master of speaking confidence into those who had no confidence. Have you ever heard about David's mighty fighting men? These dudes were rejected. They were poor in the eyes of the world. Man, they had nothing going for them. And yet they came to David because they knew this king, he knows how to speak into my life. He knows how to bring the good things out of me. He had integrity. And it enabled him to, to see what was going on and correctly deal with the heart in front of him. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Twelve through fifteen. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus." Because I was confident of this. What is he confident of? He's confident that, they have, that he's dealt with them in holiness and sincerity. Because I was confident of this, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. Look, Paul traveled from church to church. Could have been a couple weeks. Could have been a couple years in some instances. But Paul had confidence that he had something to give. Because he had integrity. Because his heart was right. So when he's talking to somebody, he can in full confidence say, when I come to you, it's going to be good. You're going to benefit from my presence. You're going to benefit from what I have to give because my heart is pure before God. So what is integrity actually? Because we've been throwing that word around. And it gets thrown around so much 
But what is it actually? Susan, can you put picture number two? Man, I know that you guys are used to beautifully crafted digital images from our pastors, but this is what I've got, okay? So I hope it's okay. This word is yosher. It's Hebrew 3476. And of course, right underneath yosher is the modern letters. How in today, if you're trying to read Hebrew in today's script, that's what yosher looks like. And it goes from right to left. Look at what's next. This is the Paleo-Hebrew, what Moses wrote and looked at in his day. If you're going from right to left, you have a Yod, you have a Shin, and you have a Resh. The Yod is an arm and closed hand. The Shin is two front teeth. And the Resh, can you see the head of a man? It looks like he's looking to the left there. You guys see those pictures? Look, any of you guys can do this. All you need is that little chart that they gave us for Father's Day. Go onto a place where it has the Hebrew translation with it. Look at the modern word and simply match up the letters and go through it. I mean, if you have a question about this, I would love to sit down with you. This has been pivotal to my study of the Old Testament. I mean, I can't tell you how revolutionary Look, doing this and seeing what this word means, actually means, it's changed everything for me. So you have arm and closed hand, two front teeth, and the head of a man. What does it mean? It means to work or to worship, to press in to the head. Integrity is working to press in to the head. Worshiping to press in to the head. So when we think about integrity, it's not such a passive thing like we always think about integrity. Man, I'm a man of integrity. Why are you a man of integrity? Because I don't really do anything wrong. I don't really lie. I don't really cheat. I don't really steal. I've never killed anybody that I know of. Uh, Integrity is such an active word. It's working. It's worshiping with all your might to press in to the head. So, Turn to Ephesians 4. There. 11 says, It was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we know that Christ is the head. So if we're working, if we're worshiping to press into Christ, this is how we begin to understand what integrity is for our own life. Look, there's no, lot, there's no doubt about it. 
Our pastors, the, the ones in fivefold ministry in this congregation, their job is to prepare us for our works of service. That, there's no question about that. But right after, in order for you to be really prepared for it, you've got to have some integrity in your life. You, it is your responsibility, it is my responsibility to press into the head who is Christ and do it by working to do it. Do it by worshiping, but exerting effort in order to grow in all things, in every part of your life, in order to grow up into Christ Jesus as our pastors are preparing us for the next step of our life. You see, this is such an active, active word. It's an active faith. It requires something of us. And not just once a week or twice. It requires something of us every single day of the week. That when we wake up, we're working to worship and to press in to Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Amen. We're going to look at some verses on this. When I got to this point in the lesson, my mind started shooting excuses. I was like, you better stop that flesh. And then I read Deuteronomy 9, and I was like, man, that's right, Lord. <laughs> Thank you. Look at verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Now it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look, the Lord might be using you in spite of you. The Lord might be affecting somebody else's life around you in spite of your integrity or righteousness. And that is a very, very powerful word. He did it with Israel. He said, it's not because of you. You, are, you do not have integrity. You do not have this. But... I'm still going to use you. But I don't want you to think that it's because you had integrity. I just want you to know it's because they need it. Because I'm a good God. Do not count yourself out of this word because you feel like you're getting used. 2 Kings chapter 17. Look at verse 9. The Israelites secretly, secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. Can you picture this? Man, they're tiptoeing around, secretly doing things, hiding it from the Lord, as if He didn't know, as if He couldn't see. And guess what? As they were doing it, they were thinking, I'm getting away with this. I'm really doing it. 
I'm building worthless things and it's okay. Because the Lord hasn't spoken anything to me about it. I'm spending my time on worthless things and it is okay because I'm doing it in secret and I'm oblivious of it and it feels great. Look at verse 14. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected His decrees and the covenant He had made with their fathers and the warnings He had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. When they thought they were getting away with it, just when they thought they got the time that they wanted to do the things that they wanted, the Lord says, look, it's no lie that these things are worthless. Of course I see what you're doing, but I'm speaking to you now because I love you. You're going after worthless things, and if you keep going after worthless things, you yourself are, be- are going to become worthless. You're going to become useless to me. If you keep desiring to press into worthless things, you're not going to have the value that I created for you to have. Integrity is saying no to the worthlessness. Saying no to pressing into those things and turning around and pressing in to Jesus Christ. Working to do it and spending time worshiping to press into Him. And in that we gain integrity and we are ready for the task. Let's keep going a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse 24 here. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. What was that? Strict training. Strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. That means we too are called to strict training. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave. I beat my flesh. I beat, I beat the things that have no meaning in my life. So that after I have preached to others... I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul's saying, look, I am speaking to my flesh and I am casting it down and I am pressing into Jesus because as I stand up here and I preach to you, I do it because when I leave those doors, that's when the disqualification is going to happen. I'm going to get disqualified once I step out those doors And I go and I pursue worthless things instead of Christ. You see, Paul wasn't concerned with the times where he came together into the church. He wasn't concerned with the times where he preached. The times when he was in fellowship. It was the times between the fellowship. 
where he went after the worthless things that he was the most concerned with. And he said, so I go into strict training. Look, I've got a plan. And it's going to protect me. And I'm not going to have worthless things around me. I'm not going to submit to worthless things. In fact, I'm going to beat my flesh. I'm going to make it my slave. And in integrity, I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to press into Jesus Christ. He is my head. And then I will not be worthless to Him. I will not be disqualified from this race. Turn to Haggai chapter 2. We'll start in verse 13. Then Haggai said, If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, uh, consecrated things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. If we lack the integrity that we need in our life, even if we feel like we're being used sometimes, even if we feel like sometimes we're hitting the mark, if we have defiled ourselves with junk in our life, then even the good things that we do, they're defiled. They're not consecrated. They're not pure. They might be worthless to the person who they occurred with, but they're worthless to you. You understand? Look at verse 18. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. This is the key. This, this scripture is the key. The key to integrity in our own life is Haggai 2.18. Look, from this day, give on, from this day on, not just this day, but the days after, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Look, you, you want desperately integrity in your life? You desperately want that to, to be able to walk and to not feel guilt and shame for the things that you do during a day? Revisit the day when the Lord put His foundation in you and breathed life in you. Revisit that very day. Go back to the foundation when He found you and He said, come follow me and you went. And your life completely changed because of it. Look, you want integrity? You go back to the cross. You, you begin to realize once again who you were. You were poor. You were wretched. You were blind. You were lame. You were weak. You were helpless. You were hopeless. You were depressed. You were those things. But when we revisit that day and we realize what Christ has done in our life, we realize the things that He's changed. We realize the good places He's put us. We realize the family He's put us in. We realize how we are no, we're no longer thinking that day to day that we're helpless. 
We have a hope. And it's the hope in the resurrection. We have a hope in the future. And we're sharing that hope. When we realize those things, then we love integrity. We love to press into Him. We love to worship Him. We love to give our life to Him. We love sacrifice for things of worth. And we forsake the worthless in our life. And is that true or is that true? Peyton, why don't you come up here? I want to read you something. Integrity is about more than just treating your wife well at home. It's about staying up and getting it right when you're dead tired. Integrity is about more than just showing up to every service. It's about seeking the Lord beforehand and asking Him for something to bring. Integrity is about more than just reading the Word to prepare for ministry. It's about reading your Word like you needed your next meal. Integrity is about more than just coming up for an altar call. It's about bowing at His feet early in the morning before your day has even begun. So do you know what the real integral function is? Let's turn to James 1. James 1.27 This is what religion is. You can stand up. This is what religion is. James 1.27 Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. What is that? Find the ones in your life who are poor and truly poor. Find the ones in your life who know that they've got a need. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Integrity. Religion is going after the poor in your life. And having integrity in every step. That is what it means to be a religious man. Look, many times I have found myself losing perspective. Many times I've come before the Lord and I realize Man, I have not visited the cross in a long time. And because of it, my integrity is slipping. Because I have not revisited the way that the Lord has transformed my life. The way that I am a completely different person. Because I haven't done it, haven't been faithful to it, I am losing this fight. And I need to revisit. Look, maybe that's your need tonight. Maybe you need to revisit the cross. Maybe you need to revisit the time when the Lord laid His foundation in your life. I don't know. Maybe you have some other need. But let's purpose in our heart today that when we walk out of these doors, we are going to have integrity. When we walk out of these doors, we are going to commit to press in 
to the head, which is Christ. 